Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. I'm trying to come up with an intro, but I can't get the discovery of the mass grave of 215 children at the Kamloops Residential School out of my head. When I was in grade two, my teacher was Miss Haythorn. She was a screamer. She didn't scream at me, but she screamed at other kids. That's how she dealt with students that were troublesome. Now, I have only vague memories of this, but I know it was a big setback for a kid with huge social anxiety who had made great strides in grade one because of a teacher who knew I could sing and used that to help me gain confidence. Anyway, in grade two, I started getting stomach aches, and so began a great long series of doctor visits and specialist appointments, which determined that they were caused by stress and anxiety. I sort of learned how to deal with them, but they never completely went away. And in fact, they got worse, and I still get them on occasion. You've heard of migraine headaches and how debilitating those are. Well, these are migraine stomach aches. Now, I got stress and anxiety-related stomach aches as a kid who lived with a loving mom and dad in a nice house and went to a good school and had good friends. I have a pretty good imagination, but I'm sure that if I try to imagine what it would have been like to be taken away from my loving mom and dad and my nice house and placed in a school with a bunch of other children and told I couldn't speak my language and nobody loved me and they probably didn't even know my name... If I imagine what that might have felt like, I'm sure I'm way off, like way the fuck off. And I as a mum look at my children and I know that never once did I ever have to worry that some person was going to come and take them away from me, abuse them, neglect them, not take them to the doctor if they had stomach aches. As it turns out, not take them to the doctor if they had TB or any other nasty illness or injury, and if they died, stick them in a grave without even making note of their name or their gender and forget about them, never mind sending them home to me. And that is why I can't get the discovery of the mass grave of 215 children at the Kamloops Residential School out of my head. And that's a good thing. It shouldn't be so easy for me to dismiss this story as easy it was for those children to be dismissed by the people who were supposed to be caring for them. Well, in truth, the people who were supposed to be caring for them were their parents. But since that option was denied them, a moment of silence for those 215 children and for the thousands of others found in other graves across Canada and for the families who are still dealing with the consequences of those inexcusable choices. Thank you. This, amazingly, or finally, is the penultimate chapter of Gatekeeper's Deception. Kier was taken hostage, stabbed, and then abandoned by Frederick, and Val and Kian went through a gate to try to stop Kier's parents from being assassinated. So. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace. Chapter 34. To Call You My Friend. 
Several clanks of metal and a thud met Val's ears as he and Kean burst into Brendau's front room. "'What do you mean by interfering with Barthelon orders, old man?' a woman's voice demanded. "'Your orders have changed, Corporal,' said Kean Barthelon, filling the space with his formidable bulk. The room was crowded and Val couldn't see whose weapons had clashed together. He stepped up next to Kean's back and saw a middle-aged woman wearing an indescribable expression with two swords crossed in front of her. One of the swords was Brendau's. Two large knives lay on the carpet nearby. Brendathlan, said Kean. Kean? Dunverin? replied Brendau. It's old home week. Rondo, stand down, Kean ordered, a reassuring hand extended. It was a mistake. Rondo paled and seemed to search for words. Val noted Kean's generosity at admitting a mistake, though he also observed that his friend had neglected to say it was his own mistake. Long story, all this, Val Raker said. Do you have any more of that tea? he asked the woman with the cup. You must be Kier's mother. Jeskellen's rich voice chased Derry down the stairs. I'll follow. You tell me everything. Kier is innocent, Derry called upward as he hastened down. I drew a sketch of Misty, and Alon Mera identified her as the one who delivered the necklace. It's just as Fennel said all along, he concluded as Jeskellen reached him at the bottom. Frederick's story was a fabrication intended to defame Kier and buy Kian's forgiveness. Derry flew through the door. His guilt gnashed his insides for being too ready to favor Frederick's words before his faith in his friend. Jeskellen would surely feel it all the more. When Derry caught up with Fennel, the elf was leaning against the massive hinge of the castle gate. A small cloud of dust was about fifty yards away, galloping westward. He started to yell for a horse, but Fennel put out a hand. Tears streamed down the pale cheeks as he said, "'Don't! You can't do anything or he'll kill her!' He coughed. <coughs> I let him go. I could have stopped him, but he'd already cut her neck. He hates her, Derry. He told me he's going to kill her. It's my fault. I'm sorry. Fennel buried his face in his arm. Jeskellen came up behind them, his face wooden with shock. Derry clenched and unclenched his hands. Fennel, this is not your fault. You're the one we should have been listening to all along. The rest of us were too busy wanting him to be right. I am the one who owes you an apology. The elf raised his eyes, and Derry said, I've been unkind and unfair. I have not treated you with the respect you deserve. The ball of dust edged farther and farther away, and Derry reached a decision. Another thing you're right about, he hates her. He'll kill her whether we follow or not. I'll get horses, Fennel dashed off to the stable. What about Valraker? Jeskellen asked quietly. He hadn't intruded his own penitence between theirs, and Derry had forgotten he was there. Derry's heart sank. Damn, I forgot the dukes went to see Quiven. No, they didn't, Jeskellen said. I was with Quiven the last two hours. Why did they want to see him? Did Quiven open a gate to Kier's home village? Derry asked urgently. When the mage confirmed this, the captain sent his brain into action. They must have known there wasn't time and made Kier open a gate. Why she hadn't gone with them was anybody's guess, but it didn't matter now. Jeskellen, you've got to go back to Quiven and tell him to reopen the gate. You must go through and find Val and Kian. They went to try to stop the Haladans being assassinated. 
But we already opened it to let Corporal Gorder back through, Jeskelin protested, though he appeared startled at the woman's occupation. She wasn't there, so we had to close it. We can't open another one for several hours. Get up there and be prepared to do it as soon as you're able, then, Derry ordered. Or Val and Kean won't get back. Jeskelin hurried off back up to the tower. Fennel trotted up, leading two horses, and within moments they were off. It took very little time to see they were gaining on their prey. Derry felt sick at the thought of what Frederick might do when he knew he couldn't get away. Head groom loaned me this, Fennel grinned and held up a longbow. Are you sure that's a good idea? Derry spoke loudly above the rumble of the horse's hooves. I figure he's shielding Kier in front. I'll shoot him in the back before I hit her. Agreed. Fennel, I'm glad you didn't leave. Fennel nodded his thanks. I get nervous sometimes, but you have to admit that when people find fault with me, it's usually because of the way I smell, not because I'm not good at what I do. He smiled shyly as he assessed his target. He fired an arrow which narrowly missed but startled Frederick's horse. Derry nearly choked on his heart as he saw Frederick, about eighty paces ahead of them, slow, then shove Kier off his horse. The former knight paused momentarily, then galloped off. Kier was lost among the grasses in the distance. She did not get up. Fennel cried out. They urged their horses faster, afraid of what they would find. Jeskelin pounded up the stairs, back the way he'd come. He stopped abruptly just prior to slamming into the owner of the feet that appeared on the steps before him. He looked up, warily, into Janik's unreadable countenance. Eyes peered down at him through slits among the hair. Jeskelin shuddered. I, I've got to go find Valraker and Kian, Jeskelin said to Janik's belly. He moved to pass on the railing side of the winding staircase. Janik shifted his bulk. Jeskelin was blocked. She was innocent, Janik said. All along. Jeskelin tried to stammer, produced nothing, and simply nodded. I believed, said Janik. Not because I wanted to, or it felt right. The slits widened and blinked. I believed, the dwarf said, because it was you. He added one further thought. She saved your life too that day. He pushed by, flattening Jeskelin against the inside wall. The mage's feet were dangerously close to losing purchase on the narrow end of the step. He stared down after his dearest friend and tried furiously to think where he had gone wrong. Skimnoddle helped Roman and Jory get Harley onto a stretcher. Roman had done some things, Skimnoddle hadn't paid attention, to stay the bleeding, and now it was prudent to remove the injured man from the lady's room. He found himself strangely squeamish and followed a few steps behind so he wouldn't have to look. He'd seen open wounds before without reaction, but this one bothered him. In an unoccupied chamber down the corridor, they lay their burden on a sofa, and Roman and Jory proceeded with what they did best. Skimnoddle stayed out of the way of the healer's hustle and bustle, but hovered nearby. When Roman had finished with liquid cures and stitching, she moved on to her healing hands remedies. Harley's breath was still too ragged for Skimnoddle's liking. He moved closer. As if he knew the halfling was near, Harley opened his eyes. Skimnoddle saw the smile there. He lifted Harley's chilly hand and held it in both his smaller ones. "'Bastard got me a good one,' Harley whispered. 
You're going to be fine, Skimnoddle said. These are preeminent healers. Harley's eyebrows shrugged. Skimnoddle knew when he was being humored. He attempted reassurance. You didn't lose much. Well, the wound wasn't... I mean, Roman was in the same room when it happened, so she took immediate action. Harley gazed around him, seeing only Skimnoddle, the healer's head and shoulder, and the sofa back. Really, you know, his voice rasped like a dagger on a grinding stone. Dying wouldn't be such a bad thing. What have I got to lose? Skimnoddle squeezed the hand that was only slightly warmer for his holding it. Perhaps you have nothing, he said with quiet steadfastness, but I have. Brendow made introductions all round in that calm manner of his that soothed everyone's rattled nerves. Valraker was delighted to meet some of the characters he'd heard of in Kier's personal history. He was pleased that they seemed excited to meet him. He was especially glad to see Brendow again. Twenty-five years was a long time to go without seeing good friends, even to a dark elf. It was only right that someone should provide an explanation, so as their host refilled the kettle and set it on the hob, Val briefed them. Naturally, he left out the part about Kian more or less losing his marbles, since the Duke wouldn't thank Val for demeaning him in front of his subjects. The high elf towered above them, his head brushing the ceiling. "'You will understand,' Kian told them in his most intimidating tone, "'that I was fraught with fear at the prospect of losing my wife and child. "'It was this distress that led me to give the order, "'but we stopped it in time, so no harm done.' Was that supposed to make the Haladins feel better, Val wondered. Candidly, I'm glad we were here with Brendow, said Della Haladin. He's the one whose sword knocked two knives aside. The assassin shied back into a corner, sheathing the sword she had drawn to defend herself against Brendow. Val smiled, admiring Della's pluck. Not many had the nerve to speak so boldly to Kian Barthelin. We know another place Kier gets it from. He signaled to Kian not to take it any further. "'My friend feels profound remorse at his action,' Val said warmly. "'He is still in the midst of great shock himself "'and will punish himself severely over this incident once it all sinks in.' He nodded soothingly to Kian, whose annoyed look was concealed from the others. "'But if you would care to list all the village's needs to get back on your feet, "'Lord Barthelon will be overjoyed to carry out your wishes, right, Kian?' Kian glared at Val and bowed to the gathering, who bustled amongst themselves, creating the list. "'Where is Kier?' Gareth said. "'Why didn't she come with you?' "'Kier is not at her best today,' Val said. "'She had sustained some injuries in weeks past and was feeling unwell this afternoon. She sends her regards.' He briefly outlined the role she had played in both the missions she had undertaken for him. Her parents beamed. The other woman and her dispatch rider friend poured the tea, and Brendau brought some over to Valraker. "'She doesn't know about the attack, does she?' said Brendau. "'That's why you didn't bring her.' Val nodded. "'The story of her injuries was true, however you are perceptive, old friend. I will receive some sharp words for excluding her when next I see her.' Val glanced over at the rest of the party and hesitated. Brendau caught his glance and lowered his voice. But will you tell her? That depends. Valraker recognized that this would be his only chance to get some answers. Brenda, what do you know about her? 
Where did she come from? I don't think she even knows herself. Brendau kept his voice low, but switched to dark elvish, to be sure. No, she does not know, Brendau agreed, nor do the Halidans. Her sudden appearance in their cornfield brought her no end of trouble during her childhood. But how did she get there? I cannot guess. She couldn't have done it herself. She was naught but a tyke. You don't know? Val's stomach lurched with surprise and disappointment. He rubbed the back of his neck. I thought for sure you would know. Brendau shook his head. I was away from you all for too long. I confess I was hoping you would be able to explain it to me. Valraker grunted in frustration. I have the tiniest of suspicions of who she might be, but no, it just doesn't make any sense. He described the recent discovery of Kier's ability to gate, which deepened the furrow between the Wemniar's eyes. Brendau shrugged helplessly. The only guess I have is that she was somehow left behind. Val leaned his hand against the bookcase. How can that have happened? Surely someone would have got word to someone. Not without breaking the vow. Valraker conceded the point. It has not yet been twenty-five years. Furthermore, how did she get to you? How would she have known to find you? That must simply be coincidence. Brendau's face took on an uncharacteristic uncertainty. Val, did I do right? Was I right to teach her your language? Yes, old friend, your instinct was correct. How did she manage to find me? She wanted to travel, to search for the very answers you and I are discussing. My thought was that she would be best served by finding you. I didn't know where you were, so I sent her to the only place I knew you'd wind up sooner or later. And now she is in my protection, for what that's worth. Val rubbed his mustache. The question now is, what, if anything, do I tell her when I know virtually nothing? He looked over to where Della was creating a list with Gareth looking over her shoulder. Rondo had been persuaded to have a cup of tea. Kean held a little cake in his fingers and looked uncomfortable. Brendau sighed. The more we tell Kier, the more the enemy could find out. Valraker nodded. And how powerful a tool would one such as she be in the hands of the enemy? If we are wrong, then things would not go well for her. Valraker eyed the volumes on the floor-to-ceiling shelving. I have no reason to believe the enemy is aware of her. If I did, I would tell her immediately. It's hard to know for sure what is the right choice. The Wemniar frowned. However, I think you're right. She will be safer if she does not know, at least for now. She won't be happy with me, but I believe it would be best to hold off until it's absolutely necessary to keep her safe. I must defer to you in this, as she is in your care. Valraker thought the man was looking very well. He switched back to Rydrish. You would be proud of her, Brendathlan, and she speaks often of you. The old man nodded. I'm glad, and to know that she found you brings peace to my heart and soul. Val raised his voice. And now, Kian, Rondo, we must be ready to go. The villagers seemed curious about their rapid mode of transportation, but none of them ventured to ask, to Val's relief. The three of them stood outside Brendau's back door, gazing over the newly sprouting fields of barley. The weighty clouds hugged the mountain, sagging so close overhead Val thought he might be able to touch them if he stood on Kian's shoulders.
The light dimmed as evening fell into the valley. Finally, Valraker exhaled fully. <sighs> Kier is not opening the gate. Kian fumed. He paced back and forth a few times, folded his arms, and leaned against the house. When he spoke, it was like the words puffed out unbidden, so low Val couldn't be sure he'd heard something. My own personal Simrian. Val turned his head sharply. What did you say? Kian shook his head and looked out across the river. Nothing, a joke someone made. Who? Val was appalled. Someone I used to know, he said dismissively. Shall we go back inside? How long do you suppose we'll have to wait? Jaskelin had been sitting for two hours on the black stone floor outside Quiven's tower room, his knees tucked up under his robes. His spirit couldn't have been lower if he'd been buried a hundred feet underground. Clarity. He'd prided himself on his ability to see to the heart of a person's troubles and move past them. Frederick had praised his objectivity. What objectivity? Ridiculous. No, Jaskelin had replayed that fateful conversation over and over. Frederick was a shrewd man. He'd known exactly how to get to Jaskelin. He'd inflated Jaskelin's ego, then preyed on his pride by piercing it with the one piece of information that could plant the seed of jealousy. The notion that Kier was capable of a spell he had not even begun to prepare for was like mold, the way it took root and spread, poisoning his confidence, his self-possession, and his judgment. Jaskelin did not know if Kier were alive or dead. If she lived, how would he make it up to her? And Janik, how would he regain the trust and loyalty of a dear friend who no longer believed in him? The mage pictured a figure seated before him, a face that tipped upward, the eyes revealing sadness and disappointment. Jaskelin's heart ached with sorrow. Then he felt a hand on his cheek, the soft, loving touch of the one who had understood him better than any. He knew what he had to do. The door opened. "'I am ready,' Quiven said. "'But you will not have much time.' I have not regenerated for long enough after the previous spells, and am nearly spent. Jaskelin got quickly to his feet and entered the chamber. I was able to fix a location closer to the village, Quiven went on, because of having seen through the last gate, but I beg of you to hurry. He looked down at Jaskelin out of tired, hazel eyes. Jaskelin nodded and offered Quiven his hands to boost the energy for creating the gate. Both closed their eyes for concentration and hummed as they drew energy from within. The gate opened. Jaskelin withdrew his hands and passed through it. Kier slowly lifted her heavy eyelids. Blinking a few times, she tried to place herself. Why do I have a feeling I've done this before? This time, when she tried to sit up, she had pains in different places from last time, but she succeeded and propped herself with a pillow. Then she finally noticed the other dissimilar detail that set this morning off from the other one. Derry was sitting in the chair next to the bed, his head lolling on the chair back as he dozed. "'Hi,' she said, and Derry awakened with a start. "'Oh, hey,' he rubbed his face. "'You look like you've been dragged by a horse.' Thanks, she smirked. You look pretty shitty yourself. He smiled wryly and worked the back of his neck with his hand. It's been a rather tough couple of days. How do you feel? 
like I've been dragged by a horse. You might as well have been. That knife barely missed vital organs. When Fennel and I found you, I thought, well, we really weren't sure. He peered at her almost shyly. It hadn't been long since Hunter dumped you. If we'd been further behind, I hate to think— Do I have Imogen to thank again? Derry nodded. Yes, and Roman herself. Now that Alon is stable, Kian was prepared to give up his prime healer. I suppose you might take that as an apology. Kier had forgotten all about Valraker's expectation that she'd open a gate for them to return. <laughs> they got back, did they? She chuckled quietly. Even if I hadn't been carted off and stabbed, I wouldn't have been in a hurry to fetch them. I figure they deserve to be stuck in a remote village for a while. Derry shrugged. I guessed they had gone to Hrath, so I sent Jaskelin back upstairs to Quiven. He was too tired to open another gate right away, so he had to rest a while. Jaskelin eventually went through and located Val and Kian, but don't worry, they were stuck there for several hours. Kier felt like grumbling. I guess even a few hours in Hrath would be like a punishment to Kian, for all that he's the Duke and he's never visited there my whole life. Derry leaned back in the chair. While you're feeling good and resentful, he wants us to keep the whole assassin thing under wraps, bad for his reputation. Plus, it'd blow the assassin's cover. Kier just looked at him blankly. She felt in no shape whatsoever to process that. Instead, she turned away and blew a long breath out of puffed cheeks. <sighs> Kier, Derry said, he didn't go on right away. When he finally spoke, it was with quiet earnestness. I had this whole speech planned, but it just feels stupid, so please let me say it. I regret my treatment of you. My behavior on the journey was... Well, let's just say that you were right about a lot of what you said that night. I had not been a good captain. Whatever happens now, I need you to know how glad I am that you're around for me to say that. You're a worthy warrior, Kier. I owe you my life. And I'm proud to, not only to serve with you, but to call you my friend, if I may. Kier's lip trembled for all her effort to hold it steady, and her eyes welled. She quickly averted her face for fear the tears would spill over. There was a tremor in her voice. I don't know what I'd do if you didn't. The silence that followed was comfortable, companionable. The awkwardness that had stemmed from the build-up of frustration and mistrust had dissipated entirely. They chatted amiably as they used to, each filling in gaps of the story that the other had not heard. She told him how she'd opened the cave doors, and he told her about the harrowing journey south to the chasm. He also told her about Jaskelin determining the White Rose's power. Her jaw slackened in surprise. Honestly, I thought Kami gave it to me as something to remember him by. I thought its only magic was that it stayed fresh. A shadow passed across her mind. I suppose a lot of trouble would have been avoided if I had shown it to Jaskelin the night he asked about magic on me. Who can say? Frederick would still have got to him. And I was no help there, the captain insisted, jumping to her defense. I knew about the rose and didn't mention it either. I did nothing to talk him out of his suspicions. Anyway, that's behind us now, he said firmly. I didn't mean to upset you. I only thought you should know. What about the mirror? she asked. Derry frowned, looking as if he'd broken a family heirloom. I wish I'd never seen the damn thing. But where did it come from? How did it get into my saddlebag? You believe I didn't— Yes, 
Derry insisted with vehemence enough to make up for not having believed her before. I don't know how, but it must have been Frederick. At some point he must have had access to Trigg. He shook his head and shrugged. There can't be anyone else. Kier nodded. No, I can't think of... Her breath caught. Oh, yes, there was one. One person who could have done it. And her heart wrenched with shame and plunged to the bottom of the deepest abyss. What had she done? Her mind raced. Who knew? Was it too late? What is it? Derry said. She shook her head. No, this was not something she was prepared to discuss with Derry. She could still make amends. Instead, she yanked herself up to level ground and in a hoarse voice said, Or Misty herself, maybe. Then she changed the subject. Maybe we'll never know, but all this, she indicated her injuries in the infirmary room, has eclipsed the main event. We ought to be celebrating. She picked up the mug of milk from her breakfast tray and said, To Alon Mare. She drank and passed the cup to Derry, who agreed, To Alon Mare. Do you suppose, Kier said thoughtfully, lying back on her pillows, that Frederick truly still cares so much for Kian, or was it all just for show? The captain rested his palms on the arms of the chair. I think he got his priorities crossed. There's no disputing that he blames you for his change of lifestyle, so he was out to get you. But, and Derry clasped his hands on his belly, I believe he truly did wish to be forgiven by Kian, and even to work with him again. He rose and wandered to the window. You devote your life to someone, like that, from boyhood. All your life lessons have been learned with his guidance. He's more like a father than an employer. To be knighted is the grandest honor when you consider how effortless it was to serve. He paused briefly, reflecting. Yes, I have no doubt that Frederick could not shake that. She watched her friend's face for a hint of his own feelings. What about you? Me? He gave her an understanding half-smile. I couldn't shake it either. Not long after, Derry departed, leaving Kier alone to delve deeper into the fleeting thought that had startled her earlier, a certain figure who had featured prominently in her pain-induced dreams, who often during their journey had appeared out of nowhere, who would always be able to find her so long as she carried a white stone she had at last chosen to discard along the path, who claimed to have her best interests at heart, but she only in this moment allowed herself to admit could so easily have deceived her. Kier stared blindly at the ceiling as an ember of fury whispered to life within her. An impromptu debriefing took place in Kian's study that evening, with wine all round. The invalids were absent, and Derry insisted on a toast to their good health. Val listened to each anecdote of what had transpired after he and Kian had left, and had the sensitivity to look abashed over Frederick's escape with Kier as hostage. Kian, Derry observed, remained as aloof as ever, not even a glimmer of recognition that his actions were at the heart of the troubling events of the day. For the first time, Derry wondered what his lord saw in the high elf. "'What I still don't understand is why,' Fennel frowned. "'Why did Misty and Juggler want to kill Alon Mare?' Derry agreed. Who were they to you, Kian, to Alon? Had you met them? Kian waved a hand dismissively. I meet so many people I can't possibly remember them all. 
I imagine they had some grievance, some ill-formed perception that I had, he rolled his steely eyes, wronged them in some way. Why not just slit her throat? Janet caught himself and gave Kean an apologetic nod. Sorry, your lordship, but if Misty had the opportunity to be alone in the room with the lady, why this ghastly protracted process? They wanted him to suffer. Val shrugged. We will never know their real motive, but I think we can infer that they believed Kian deserved to be punished for some reason. Kian? Fennel said, scowling. Why does it have to be about Kian? Sorry, your lordship, but it was Alon who suffered most and would have died. Valraker's mouth formed an O of surprise. Fennel, you're right. I don't know why we thought... But why would Misty and Juggler have wanted to punish Alon? Perhaps they did not, Skimnoddle began, and heads turned. Whoever hired them did. Derry was moved. Both Fennel and the halfling were able to see things from a perspective the others had forgotten. I must keep learning. Around him, the talk had returned to what happened after Frederick left Kier for dead. Jeskelin told of Derry's instructions to have Quiven gate him back to Hrath to find the dukes. It was a terribly difficult spell, he said offhandedly. Quiven is probably still sleeping to recover from yesterday. Derry picked up on Jeskelin's tone. Only Janet grasped its meaning. That's it, isn't it? Janet leaned around Fennel to eye Jeskelin. It annoys you that Kier can do a spell that you can't, and she's not a mage. He looked as if he'd never laid eyes on the Moabi before. Jeskelin stared ahead of him, shame-faced. It just doesn't make sense. You would have ruined her, Janik's volume increased. You'd have seen Kian draw and quarter her and hang her pieces like gargoyles on every corner of this castle. She'd have served as a vivid reminder of why nobody crosses Kian Barthelon, all over jealousy about a spell. All eyes were on Jeskelin, although Derry noted that Kian did not deny Janik's assessment of his character. The mage shook his head wordlessly. Gathering courage, Derry wondered. He spoke finally, softly, and with more humility than Derry had ever witnessed from the mage. They say arrogance is a form of blindness. I have been sightless these many weeks. I thought my Moabi shaman training brought me a step closer to the gods. Greater self-possession, greater understanding, greater clarity— it appears I am a mortal after all, capable of overconfidence and fallibility, and yes, Janik, my friend, indulging in fancy. I have been humbled. I do not know how I am going to prove to all of you, and especially to Kier, that I have learned, but I beg of you to do me the honour of not doubting that I will try. The stillness lasted for several breaths before Derry broke it. You have my support, Jeskelin. I myself have been culpable. In fact, Fennel is the only one who stood by Kier all along. Fennel blushed, and as if to dismiss the attention, said, But Val, let's face it. Jeskelin isn't the only one who wonders about Kier's ability to gate. She has said many times that she doesn't deal with magic, yet it's clearly an advanced spell. Jeskelin nodded. If I may be so bold, sirs, Quiven has explained in detail the limitations of such a spell, and my own experience yesterday has proven to me that the spell is utterly impossible for a layperson to perform. So tell me, my lords, how, not to mention why, can she do it? Derry watched the two dukes exchange uneasy glances. Kean gave Val a subtle nod. 
Valraker ahemmed and sat up straighter. I must ask for your absolute discretion in this. All I am prepared to say at this point is that there is one circumstance wherein a person is able to open gates without the same limitations imposed on you or I. One. And in that circumstance, no spell is involved. You will all have to be satisfied with that. Derry didn't know what Valraker meant, but he could not tell from Duskellin's open-mouthed stare whether he knew any more. After another night of deep, restful sleep, Kier's left hand was stiff, but no longer required immobilization. Although Frederick's stab wound still stung on the surface and ached when she moved, bandages and salve had done wonders for it, and though her right shoulder needed a good deal of stretching and exercise before she'd wield her sword properly, she could at least move it without sharp pains slicing across her chest and down her arm. All round, she felt better than she had in weeks. Her legs still needed the splints for a few more days. Last night Imogen had decided that the bones had melted back together well enough to speed up the process with a higher-grade healing potion. "'And if you're going to go traipsing about without my leave like you did the other day,' the good healer had scolded, "'I had better heal you before you break every bone in that obstinate body of yours.' Kier grinned and stretched. "'To be fair, much of that traipsing around was not my choice.' There was a shuffle in the corridor, and Derry stood in the doorway. The curtains and shutters were open to let in the bright morning light. Kier lifted her half-empty breakfast tray over to the bedside table and sat up. It was much easier to do now. "'What is it?' Kier asked. There was something in the way Derry looked at her. He stepped into the room. She gestured for him to sit down, but he shook his head. The blonde fringes of his hair softly curled above his blue eyes. Kier had never seen his hair long enough to know that it curled. It looks, well, nice. But it was his eyes that startled her. They glistened. Kier, his chest lifted with each breath more noticeably than if he'd been relaxed. It has happened. The glistening eyes shone, and Kier knew exactly what Derry was talking about. A smile spread across her face, and she had a feeling her eyes were glistening, too. "'I told you so,' she said. Derry's face lit up, filling the room with sunshine. He plunked down in the chair. He could, now that he'd told her the news. "'It's what I've always wanted, what I've worked for since I was seven years old.' "'I know. Sir Derry, don't you think that sounds like—' <laughs> She laughed. "'It sounds damn good.' "'Do you know what Dunvarin said to me?' Derry sobered and looked at Guillaume more like the Derry she first met. "'He told me the reason it took him so long.' His voice sounded like his throat was lined in cotton wool. "'He said it wasn't enough for me to behave as a knight in order to be one. He said I had to believe in myself. I guess I always thought I'd be better at believing in myself if he knighted me. But he said no, it doesn't work that way.' He always believed in you, Kier said. He was just waiting patiently for you to come around to his way of thinking. Derry perked up again. The ceremony is tomorrow afternoon. Everyone in the castle is invited to the Great Hall. Alon might even attend for a while if she's feeling well enough. The tailor is making me dress garments in Eckert colors. There will be a feast and dancing. His eager voice carried on, and Kier smiled to herself. Dancing, I never did get around to asking him. 
This side of Derry was entirely new to Kier. She had initially met his formal, proud self who took things so seriously that he hardly ever cracked a smile. He'd unwound like fishing line over the weeks that she'd gotten to know him before winding up tighter than a crannikin in the past month. His face went somber. I know what you've said in the past about not wanting a knighthood to be tied down to one person. I don't mean to offend, but, well, I do wish it were both of us. You deserve it as much as I, if not more. Kier knew what he meant and smiled. He brightened again. You'll be well enough to come, won't you? I wouldn't feel right somehow without you there. She tossed a pillow at him. Nobody has enough money to pay me to stay away. Yay! Derry's finally going to receive his knighthood! Won't that be so great? On Saturday night, I went and hung out with some girlfriends, which was wonderful to see them all in person again. And when I got home, Matt had made a chocolate cake. He iced it and everything. He had all the ingredients for the cake, mixed it all up, and went to pour it into two round cake tins to make a layer cake. Turns out, we have only one round tin because I gave the second one to one of the kids. So he made one round cake and one square cake. Once it was baked, the square cake stuck in the cake pan, despite the fact that he greased and floured it. Plus, it's a stoneware pan that hasn't had any baked good stick in it for years. So the cake kind of broke apart when he was getting it out of the pan and lost much of its structural integrity. It lost more when he cut the corners off so that it would fit better with the round cake. He successfully stacked them and then he made the icing. Turns out we didn't have enough icing sugar to make the recipe, so he substituted berry sugar, which is, albeit not as grainy as regular sugar, it is grainier than icing sugar. And while mixing the icing with the hand mixer, he spilled a little. So he put the mixer down so he could grab a cloth. And while grabbing the cloth, the mixer slipped and fell off the counter, splashing icing everywhere. And by the time I got home, there was a beautiful chocolate cake on the counter, iced with chocolate icing, some of the leftovers of which he scooped from the bowl to let me taste it. It was delicious, a bit grainy, but delicious. And then he told me the story and pointed out that he had washed all the splashed icing off the floor, at which point I happened to look up and saw all the icing splashed on the ceiling. By this time, he was so damn mad at the damn cake that he said, I don't even want this cake anymore. So we gave it away to a friend who needed dessert for Sunday dinner because her mom was coming over. As time has progressed since then, we continue to find splashes of icing all over the kitchen, on the fridge, on the cupboards, on the walls, on the notepad by the phone, even on his computer screen, because he'd been following an online recipe to make the cake. I feel like this story isn't going to come to an end until the next time we renovate the kitchen. (laughs) Thank you so much to my family. Matt, who made me chocolate cake, (laughs) David and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon. Shout out to the original six. We'll be back next week for the final chapter of Gatekeeper's Deception. Thank you so much for listening. Now, go be fantastic.